Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, April 22nd, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. There's a Washington Post article entitled, Dog Owners Are Much Happier Than Cat Owners, Survey Finds, that's making the rounds on social media. So what gives? Are dog owners actually happier? And if that's the case, why? Well, the article profiles a general social survey that came out in 2018 that for the first time included a battery of questions about pet ownership. It turns out about 60% of households have at least one pet. And if you only have a dog, you're 36% likely to say that you are very happy (laughs) compared with someone who has no pets. Of people who have no pets, 32% of them describe themselves as being very happy. So that's not a big difference, probably not even a significant one. But if you only have a cat, only 18% of you households with a cat only report being very happy. And so the distinction between people who are dog only and cat only seems to be one of happiness, or at least self-reported happiness. And if you have both a dog and a cat, they seem to cancel each other out in that about 28% of households who have a dog and a cat would say that they are very happy. The Post article underscores that these differences are actually quite large. In fact, this distinction in happiness ratings between dog-only owners and cat-only owners is about the same as those who identify as middle versus upper class. And As the article points out, these differences are actually pretty substantial. So it turns out that the difference between people who are dog-only owners or cat-only owners in terms of their happiness is about the same as people who say they're in fair versus good or excellent health. And it's larger than people who identify as middle or upper class. But of course, there are likely factors that drive both of these effects that maybe aren't, (laughs) uh, aren't entirely tied to being a dog owner or a cat owner. It turns out that dog owners are more likely to own their own home, be married, and have a family. And people who are cat owners only are more likely to live alone, which might be the cause of their unhappiness. Dog owners also seem to make more friends as they interact with people in their neighborhood. 
But cat owners might argue that it's not just about being happy, the reason why they have a cat with which they share a home. Cats themselves are mysterious, and some people argue that it's not people who own cats, but rather cats who own their people. To get a deeper understanding of this phenomenon, we turn back to my interview with Abigail Tucker. She's a science writer who wrote a book called Cats, The Lion in the Living Room, and she'll have the definitive answer for us as to why do we actually keep cats around if they don't make us happy. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Abigail Tucker. Thank you so much for having me. I love the fact that we are doing a show on cats that will be available on the internet. Seems extremely appropriate. Very much. So, <laughs> uh, let's start there. Why is why are cats an internet phenomenon? You know, I think that's really kind of a legitimate mystery. And um, I have some theories about uh, why they might be such a big deal online. Um, and all of them have to do with the way that they work, uh, cats work in the real world and sort of the, um, the, uh, origins of, of feline biology. And basically what cats are either in your lap or online in the disembodied realm are meat eating machines. Every fiber of their body is designed to hunt, um, and to, uh, harvest huge amounts of, uh, fat and protein from the landscape. And, um, they hunt in a very particular way, which is an ambush, uh, stalk and ambush style of hunting. And I think that that, um, particular style of attack is something that works really well online. Cats are very sudden creatures and they kind of explode out of places and are very interesting to film um, in short formats. So that's sort of why cat videos are um, are such a hit. Um, a lot of them involve very explosive action that stems from the way that cats hunt. And there's a few other things about them that I think are really interesting and um, related to their meat-eating ways. Um, another is that they... Um, Cats, because they do require such large amounts of meat in nature, tend to be what's called apex predators. They're sort of the sitting solo at the top of ecosystems, and they're usually solitary animals. And I think that solitary nature also translates really well into the internet because cats um, don't need to interact with um, other cats or human subjects. They just do really well in a vacuum, just kind of like sitting in a random generic living room. They are complete in that way and in a way that dogs, which are very social animals, are not. So let's just, there, there are two things in, in particular about cats on the internet that have been bothering me and I, I just, I can't wait to ask you this. One, uh, why are they afraid of cucumbers? <laughs> you know, that's a really interesting question. I feel like cats just have this very um, startled way of moving that, again, just kind of stems from the way that they uh, are active in landscapes. And so I think that they kind of um, appear to be afraid a lot of times, even though cats are sort of very inscrutable animals. And, um, you know, they, they are sort of... Uh, it's impossible to really know what they are thinking. But yeah, they do appear to be pretty afraid of cucumbers. <laughs> I always thought it was because maybe it looks like a snake or, you know, you know that's some not kind a bad predator. theory. That's actually a good idea. So the other question is, why do they like uh, getting into small spaces like coffee cups and vases? You know, um, I am... Uh, I think that, again, that has to do with the fact that cats are um, sort of by nature, very cryptic 
hidden animals and they like to lie and wait and hide. And, you know, if it's a, a small, if it's a, a small space or a tight fit, that's, that's okay with them because they can, um, they can get out of that space with, with ease as well. And I think sort of the quintessential cat video are those Maru videos of the cat, like hopping into a box and then exploding back out. And it's this sort of hiding and striking combination that is something that can be captured really well in short online formats um, that makes them kind of stand out predators online. So your book was the first to sort of change the way I think about the domestic cat. I am, of course, one of these people who think of the predatory big cats like lions and tigers as being particularly dangerous. Certainly would not let you know my <laughs> toddler good. get anywhere near one. <laughs> um, but it, you know, from your book, you suggest that in fact, in, just in terms of sheer amount of carnage, sheer effect on our world, the domestic cat is by far worse. Oh, yeah. Domestic cats, it's almost uh, impossible to think of how many cats there are uh, padding around on the planet today. People think that there's 600 million or more, maybe a billion house cats. There are so many house cats in the world that in America alone, more house cats are born on average every day than there are wild lions in the entire world. So it's a staggering number of house, of, of, of animals. And the thing is that even though they have a very uh, different relationship with man, they still are at their heart cats and they uh, do what cats do, which is eat meat. And they um, extract a, uh, a huge amount of meat from the environment in a whole different variety of ways. And some of that and what gets the most coverage, I think, is their, their hunting of um, endangered species and then other other wild animals generally. But even if your cat doesn't go outside, it's still getting meat from somewhere, whether that's from a chicken farm or from uh, sardines caught in some far off ocean. Uh, they all are eating meat. Yeah. So in your book, you have this one fact that uh, America's house cats consume the equivalent of three million chickens every day. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 a big environmental impact, I would think, in terms of getting these chickens and, you know, producing them and getting them to the cats. And, you know, is there is the production of cat food something that we should be thinking about when it comes to our impact on the environment? Well, I mean, certainly we impact the environment in all sorts of different horrifying ways. Um, I did read a paper about the amount of seafood, uh, wild caught seafood that cats eat and the fact that the average Australian cat eats more fish than the average Australian does. And so... Uh, fishing and overfishing is a, and bycatch is sort of a major concern. And so with cats, just the sheer numbers of cats on the planet mean that, you know, wherever they're making their living, it, it does make a difference, um, to, to the way the planet, the planet works. But then, of course, you know, the, the impacts that are even more shocking are when <laughs> cats can, um, you know, strike at a, uh, a, a far less common kind of animal, like a, a, spe a different types of birds or uh, small rodents, especially, and um, single-handedly shrink their populations and in some cases really contribute to extinctions. 
Yeah, so that's one of the things I feel like people talk about in San Francisco, where I live, a lot about how there's lots of stray cats in Golden Gate Park, our big city park, and that they are, in some ways, uh, endangering the small bird population. But you know, do pe- can people actually measure that? And is there is is there any data to suggest that this is really an issue, or is it just people kind of speculating? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there have been really good studies on small islands about what cats can do to a a population of birds or small mammals, and it's clear that they can take a toll. Um, However, small islands are different as ecosystems than uh, mainland areas. Um, So in places like Hawaii and America, it's very clear that cats uh, pose an environmental problem. On the mainland, that's more controversial. There's a lot of uh, bird scientists who say that, yes, they are... um, single-handedly threatening uh, bird populations um, on the mainland as well. And one uh, argument that's compelling there is that um, the urban ecosystems and mainland ecosystems in general are coming to resemble islands more. They, uh, urban ecosystems are uh, these little um, uh, blips uh, in bigger systems of wilderness, or there's little parks like the park you're talking about that are little islands in large urban areas. And those places may have characteristics of island ecology where cats could take a, um, a real chunk out of a, a population of uh, stranded animals. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really interesting is the case of Australia, because Australia is... Um, a mainland ecosystem. I mean, it's 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 a it's an island, but it's also a continent. It's a place where um, huge amounts of uh, uh, cats live and kill, you know, millions upon millions of animals. And so, that's a, an area that's big enough that that it's sort of compelling to me that cats could make a difference in a place like that. We're not talking about just a little tiny scrap of land in an ocean. We're talking about a continent where the government has said that cats are a big enough problem that they're actually developing new systems to um, eliminate cats from the Australian ecosystem. So I think, yeah, the fact that there are um, that that mainland areas can have characteristics of island ecosystems and that some of these islands we're talking about are practically as big as mainlands um, mean that there's something at least uh, interesting and compelling about the arguments that these bird scientists are making. And so they have been classified as invasive species. Oh, yes. They're, they're, they're the quintessential invasive species, which is something that was um, really kind of uh, amazing to me um, because I always thought of cats as something that just belonged right by my side. But, um, of course, they, they have no business being um, in America or being really anywhere outside of North Africa and the Near East, which is where... Felis Sylvestris Libica, the uh, wild ancestor of all our domestic cats, comes from. And uh, they just kind of moved through the earth um, in the shadow of humanity, although there are places where cats live where people uh, can't or won't or don't live, too, which is kind of interesting. It's like they can even go, they can even invade beyond where people can invade. So we had a stray cat for a while and we never had any mice in our house while the stray cat was, you know, making his presence known. And then when he died, we had a really bad 
mass rodent problem. But in your book, you suggest that actually cats aren't great deterrents for rodents. That was a surprise to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I too have had the experience as a, a, a an urban dweller where I found a uh, little dead beheaded mice on my carpet and and things like that. Cats definitely kill mice. And, you know, it could be that in a in a tight living quarters, like apartment dwelling or row house dwelling, that you having a cat, your neighbor not having a cat, that makes a difference in the way that the uh, rodents kind of uh, design their territories and lifestyles. But generally speaking, um, rodents are the only animals, pretty much these these um, uh, human affiliated rodents, like um, uh, Norway rats and and certain kinds of house mice, um, they are basically almost as spectacularly um, powerful and good at surviving as house cats are, and they're just so good at breeding and so good at surviving that a cat really can't make a huge impact on a rodent population. With mice, you know, mice are certainly an animal that's small enough for um, cats to to eat, um, but I think the question is more like, will your cat actually um, exterminate mice in a way that's... Uh, really to please you and to to better your life rather than just randomly picking off a mouse here and there because it's hungry. The cats don't really behave like rat terriers that are going to systematically rid a place of um, rodents. And I think the more, even more interesting example is... um, urban rats. Um, There have been really good studies done in uh, places like Baltimore, where um, the scientists study how cats, alley cats, and um, these very uh, robust Norway rats uh, cohabitate in alleyways and how they get along. And the scientists found that, indeed, you do find more cats in alleys where there are more rats, which would suggest to innocent cat owners like, like us that perhaps the cats are preying on the rats that carry all these terrible diseases. But really, it's because the cats and rats are both eating the same research, which they share in a pretty uh, friendly way. And the resource that they share is trash. Cats eat, um, you know, they don't need to kill these rats in our alleyways. And I think we sort of tell ourselves that this story that, you know, to explain our close and mysterious relationship with this animal, that there has to be some kind of uh, reasonable explanation for the fact that we keep so many millions, hundreds of millions of cats around. And it's like, well, they help us out in all these different ways. I know they're killing rats in the alleyway, but actually cats and rats can just kind of hang out within a few feet of each other and gobble trash together because it's easier for both of them. Nobody has to get hurt. We've left enough refuse around for everybody to share. And, um, you know, that's the way that that animals survive. You know, it's just like you eat as much as you can, Get try not to get into too many fights, have as many babies as possible, and, you know, take over the world. So I want to take a moment and uh, let our listeners know that your book, The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World, is available at booksellers everywhere. Today's episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. Inquiring Minds is a show that cares about going straight to the source for answers to your questions. And The Great Courses does too. They have in-depth video courses presented by top-notch experts who are not only smart, but interesting to watch. And the courses are yours to keep forever. You can learn completely on your schedule. 
And in fact, one of these top-notch experts is our own Indre Viscontis. Indre partnered with The Great Courses and produced a course called Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. In the course, she explores some of the most fundamental misconceptions about the human brain, like how are smartphones affecting our intelligence? Are other animals as conscious as humans? Can brain games really make you smarter? And a ton more. I've known Indre for a long time, and not only is she an incredible podcast host, she is an amazing teacher. And this is a chance for you to find out firsthand what it's like to have Indre teach you neuroscience. It's an amazing course, and I highly recommend it. If you like Inquiring Minds, you will like Brain Myths Exploded. For a limited time, The Great Courses is offering you a special offer. If you order Indre's course, you get 85% off the regular price. That's over $200 in savings, and you can start watching it today. This offer is only available at thegreatcourses.com minds. That's thegreatcourses.com minds. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. Magellan TV is built by documentary filmmakers, and new programs are added on a weekly basis. They offer documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists across a wide variety of genres like science, technology, history, space, and nature. From computers and the rise of artificial intelligence to the basic laws of chemistry, physics, and biology, viewers can explore the impressive advances of science and technology. Watch anytime, anywhere on your television, laptop, or mobile device. Enjoy a wide selection of programs available in 4K without additional cost and stream documentaries without interruptions. Magellan is now compatible with Roku, iOS, and Android with the ability to cast to most popular streaming devices. Why not check out some of their historical fiction like Ekaterina, The Rise of Catherine the Great? Start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash InquiringMinds. That's MagellanTV.com slash InquiringMinds. So let's get to how this all began. How did we get into this mess? Yes. Um, you know, the story of animal domestication is absolutely fascinating. And um, it's very mysterious. And we are still sort of understanding how we came to forge relationships with a lot of the domesticated animals that we have around us. Um, but it seems like in most cases, uh, you know, when humans move from becoming hunter gatherers to settled farmers, or proto farmers, we gradually started um, cultivating relationships with various animals and taking them under um, our wing for a variety of purposes, usually 
well, almost always we wanted something from them. Like we wanted their meat or their milk or their labor or something like that, their fur. With house cats, though, the story is not quite as uh, cut and dry. It doesn't seem that uh, humans ever really tried to harness house cats. And it seems like they kind of crept into our settlements of our uh, of their own accord. And one of the uh, fun things that I did when reporting the book was I visited this lab at the Smithsonian where um, this great uh, scientist, uh, Melinda Z- Zader, was um, sorting through the bone bones and other remains from an ancient, I think, um, 11,000 year old uh, he, early human settlement uh, that had originally been in Turkey. They transported the, the uh, debris to Washington, D.C., when she, where she was looking through it and trying to find out what these people were eating and what they were doing, that kind of thing. One of the things that these scientists noticed was that um, in these early human settlements, you find these large spikes of what are known as mesopredators. So, small carnivores, um, like foxes and badgers and these little wildcats, which are the ancestor of our pets today. And basically, they think that, you know, what was going on was a lot like what was happening um, in the urban alleyways of modern Baltimore, that we were just creating these mounds of trash and these little animals were just coming in to eat the trash directly. And, you know, it could be that they were eating the mice that were around the trash to quote unquote help us. But I'm pretty sure at that time we hadn't really domesticated grains and didn't have grain stores or anything. So the mice wouldn't really be eating the, 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 the human resources in the same sort of ways. So there are these huge spikes of small predators that we um, also helped by killing off the, the big uh, carnivores in the ecosystem, like leopards, things that might have competed with the small predators. So we ha- there's a natural explosion of these little carnivores. And you can see the same thing in cities today, like uh, foxes in London or um, uh, raccoons in a lot of places, huge uh, explosions of, of these little, little guys. Um, but the interesting thing about house cats is that they don't occupy the same niche as foxes today in all cases. They can. They can live on the outskirts of our civilizations and make a living within our sphere. But they kind of went um, many, many little footsteps closer and um, partially underwent this very um, strange and inscrutable uh, physical process of domestication, whereby they underwent a series of small physical changes, particularly in the um, fear-related systems of their brains, which were reduced so that they could kind of stand to be in our stressful uh, cities and towns um, even more. So so sort of gradually over the millennia, cats' brains got a little bit smaller, so they got a little bit less afraid of of us. Um, And that's sort of the key element of um, animal domestication in general. Animals have to not be afraid so they can eat and have babies in our settlements and thrive. Um, But the thing about cats is that they didn't go all the way. They don't exhibit this key suite of features that you see across domesticated animals if you think about them. 
them. And scientists since Charles Darwin have been really puzzled by why domesticated animals have these kind of goofy looking traits like floppy ears and spots and kind of um, squashed in um, baby-like faces and curly tails. Uh, that suite of features is called the domestication syndrome. Um, and dogs exhibit all of the features of the syndrome. They're sort of the example because the, the best example because they were domesticated um, earlier than cats were. And so they've been under our care than longer than any other domesticated animal. But cats don't exhibit all of these features. They do have the mottled coloration like the white splotches in some cases, but they don't have floppy ears. They don't have curly tails. Um, they're not, uh, their faces are very much like the case, the faces of the wild, um, near Eastern, the near Eastern wild cat. And people think that that might be because we never, um, put them under, um, artificial selection and that they've slowly, slowly been, um, uh, exhibiting these uh, features of the domestication syndrome because they've been under a kind of self-directed natural selection whereby they're sort of gaining some of the traits of domestication without ever actually being domesticated for any clear purpose. And then, of course, there are certain breeds like um, I think of Persian cats that, that do seem to have the smushed in faces and, and maybe are more uh, a result of artificial selection. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is something that um, that scientists are still kind of grappling with. You know, does a dog that looks a lot more like a, a baby, basically, that, that has like a more squashed in face and floppier ears, is it necessarily tamer than another kind of dog, like a German Shepherd that looks more like a wolf? I think it's unclear whether within breeds... Um, the the resemblance uh, translates into domestication um, because like another highly selected feline uh, kind, the Siamese has an opposite thing where it has like a really long wedge-shaped face, but that's also an animal that we spend a lot of time breeding. Basically, what it comes down to with cat breeds, and this is not something that I knew, um, is that a lot of them, well, first of all, almost all of them were made up in the last 50 years or so, unlike dog breeds, some of which date back to Roman times and Egyptian times and earlier, um, they were, uh, they were recently invented and they're based on really superficial traits. Like they're, um, this widening of the Persian face that we see is almost like, an aesthetic thing rather than a purpose-driven thing. With dogs, at least nominally, a lot of breeding is based around certain tasks like, okay, this dog's going to be good at hunting for creatures that live in burrows, or this dog's going to have a great uh, nose system, a bloodhound, or this dog's going to be good at chasing wolves. Um, with cats, since cats don't really do anything purpose-driven selection is not really possible and sort of form can't follow function if there is no function. So basically these cats are just developed because they look weird and people in the cat breeding world, um, you know, sometimes they're, they're always looking for kind of like the next novelty trait. But uh, cat geneticists think that if we were to sort of just put all that behind us and forget about what looks cool or funny or new or interesting and just focus on the temperament of cats and this idea, this underlying idea that, um, 
it was these bold, um, cool natured cats that were the ones who weaseled their way into our settlements and made themselves our pets. If we were to further enhance those traits and just breed them for temperament alone, then interesting new physiques might arise from that. And that's exactly what happened um, in this uh, famous Russian fox ex- uh, fox farm experiment where um, these Russian scientists 50 or 60 years ago took um, a kind of fox that had never been uh, domesticated before and bred them not for thick fur or um you know, length of tail or other things you might, other measurable things that you might think that people would breed foxes for, but only for their temperament alone. And um, it was really interesting. Within just a few generations, um, the foxes, uh, the friendly foxes began to transform and exhibit things like um, droopy ears and spotted fur, and they began to look a little bit more like like collie dogs. And we've never really put cats under the same kind of uh, test. And if we did, we might get more interesting breeds, or so some of these geneticists think. So one of the things I found really interesting is that cats don't meow to each other. They only meow to us, which sounds like it's a trait that has been bred in in some way or selected for in some way through domestication. Yeah, I mean, that that is something that's really interesting that um, in the wild, cats, even the ancestor of our um, of our pets, uh, the Near Eastern wild cat, cats are really solitary animals. They don't have a good communication repertoire because they're living by themselves in these places and they don't talk to anybody. Um, so even um, feral cats or stray cats, animals that are not living inside of our houses, meow less than the ha- cats that are inside of our houses. And it almost seems to be like something, um, you know, the, the, the subtitle of my book is um, how house cats tamed us and took over the world. It does seem that cats somehow within our care, you know, they're, they're these indoor cats, they're trapped with us. They need a way to get the resources that they normally, that they're perfectly equipped to hunt on their own. They need to kind of figure out a way to manipulate the system. And so they change the way that they um, purr and the way they me- that they meow in a kind of conditioning process. They, um, they, they go about taming us, <laughs> which is kind of kind of amazing to me um so they uh they actually kind of uh bend us to to their wills and i the the fact that you know you can have a cat that's that's stray and outdoors and doesn't meow very much and then you take its brother and put it inside and it learns how to meow in these complicated ways to get you to give it its food it's just fascinating yeah, and you know, taking that even one step further, of course, there's toxoplasmic gondi. Oh yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're a cat owner yourself, so perhaps this is too close to home, but you know, tell us about this parasite. Yes. So, this is the uh parasite that lives in um in cat uh intestines and is distributed into the environment. Uh, via cat droppings. Um, and, um, it's just a, uh, 
an astounding um, organism. It's kind of the cat of the parasite world, which is really interesting. It's so widely distributed. Something like one in three people worldwide carry this um, parasite in cysts in their bodies. Um, and scientists are just kind of starting to figure out how it might affect us. Um, there's a lot of hype around um, the parasite and how it kind of uh, puppeteers us and practices um, a kind of uh, mind control thing because it does live inside of our brains. Um, but I don't think you even need to go that far into how it makes us feel to be amazed by how astoundingly pervasive and successful the parasite is. Um, I mean, it's been known for years to, um, to blind uh, babies and cause abortions and all kinds of things. During the AIDS epidemic, um, it killed something like 10 or 20% of AIDS patients because these parasites, once they get entrenched into your body, if your immune system is compromised and it can't hold the parasite at bay, it will, you know, it will just um, run roughshod over your, your brain, basically, and it can cause and death. Yeah, let me just interject and say that this is the drug that Martin Shkreli came under fire for increasing the cost of. You know, it was a drug to to essentially eliminate this infection. Um, exactly. You, yeah. yeah. And I, I thought it was really interesting because I saw in those stories that not very many of them mentioned that they talked about the disease, uh, you know, uh, the parasite um, in as a disease is called toxoplasmosis. And uh, the stories talked about toxoplasmosis, but very few of them talked about cats. Um, <laughs> I think that it's, it's, it's sort of almost TMI for a lot of people. There have been these interesting pieces about, you know, can, can toxoplasma make you crazy? But I think, you know, it's just really hard for people to parse sometimes, like in these drug coverage stories, that it's the cats that we have hanging out with us all the time that are wreaking this havoc on people's health. And it's, it's really kind of, um, it's an astounding situation. Um, and especially when you get into how widespread the parasite is in communities of wild animals, something like 80% of black bears in Pennsylvania carry the parasite. Lots of sea otters in California carry the parasite. And um, that is uh, almost certainly a result of the domestication uh, and uh, invasion of, of the house cat. You know, before uh, house cats were domesticated, even before we start, we started killing off all the top wild cats like mountain lions and um, and tigers and things like that. You know, these creatures, though they were um, global. Um, widespread globally were still pretty rare because they're apex predators sitting at the top of their ecosystems often alone. That is totally different than what we have in the modern world where you can have thousands of cats packed into a, a city mile and cats, you know, many cats wandering a neighborhood. It's these densities of felines that the world has never seen um, have these parasitic consequences that, you know, are really interesting and almost scary to think about. Yeah, I so I'm I'm still waiting for the the meme of like Martin Chakrelli like with a as you know Doctor Evil with like you know <laughs> stroking a cat or or as like the cat lady surrounded by a thousand cats. <laughs> Coming <laughs> Someone soon. Someone do that. <laughs> um, but you know, so so the idea also comes from the fact that there are studies of uh, mice or rodents, for example, that when infected with the parasite become you know they no longer fear cats, which makes them easy prey. 
Um, yeah. Is that, is that where this is coming from? Yeah. So this idea that these cats, that cats can uh, control um, the minds and behaviors of other creatures. Personally, I think that that's just kind of like a manifestation of cats' power and the way that we're constantly trying to come up with a logical explanation for the kinds of power that these creatures have over us and the hold that they have on the world. Um, but yeah, there really are these, these famous studies where, um, rodents were exposed to cat uh, urine and the rodents who were infected with uh, toxoplasmosis seemed to lose their fear of cat urine, um, which um, makes it more likely that they would get eaten by a cat or so the story goes. And that's really, really good for the parasite because if the parasite can get eaten by a cat, especially a cat that's never before been infected by the parasite, the parasite can breed a billion copies of itself in the cat's stomach and then get um, excreted out and infect many other animals in the food web and then those guys can lose their fear of cat urine and get eaten by a cat and then the cycle continues so the that is those are kind of the classic uh studies however there are scientists who think that it the story is not that simple there are a lot of it well some examples of um parasites controlling the behavior of um, other animals um, for reproductive ends, but that usually occurs in um, really simple organisms like ants. Um, there's no other parasite known to puppeteer uh, mouse behavior or ma mammal behavior, let alone human behavior. Um, and some scientists think that um, maybe the parasite just makes... Um, it, if it gets into your brain um, and it um, makes you just feel kind of under the weather, that just that um, change in in your the way that you feel or the way that a mouse feels can make it um, more likely that the animal that that the animal will get eaten by a cat. From the the parasite's perspective and the cat's perspective, by the way, it doesn't really matter whether or not this is some sort of uh, choreographed thing where you want where you suddenly you you are attracted to cats as they say or if it's just an accidental thing and you don't feel good and you're just more likely to get killed um in general it doesn't really matter as long as cats get the parasite and the parasite gets transmitted so one last unexpected result of reading your book is that uh i no longer think i can drink sauvignon blanc <laughs> Yes, uh, that, so. the um, right. That's um, a really one of these just strange facts that came up in the course of my reporting. And there were so many of them um, is that, um, you know, this the case of New Zealand, it, New Zealand and cats are just really interesting in general. New Zealand is an island nation that doesn't have any native uh, mammal species, uh, let, except for a few um, kinds of bats. Um, but it also has one of the highest rates of cat ownership in the world. And of course, the cats eat the bats and all the birds and cause this havoc. And there's a campaign underway now to um, basically outlaw cats from New Zealand. And, you know, good luck with that. Um, but um, these cats also carry um, toxoplasmosis, as they do all over the world. And um, 
that uh, that has economic implications for New Zealand because um, one of the animals that uh, responds uh, most poorly to uh, toxoplasmosis are sheep, and the parasite causes uh, barrenness in in sheep and uh, lamb abortions, and has economic consequences for these sheep farmers who make up a big part of New Zealand's economy. But kind of the uh, ironic twist is that. New Zealand is known for these um, these uh, Sauvignon Blancs, and um, especially ones that smell um, in uh, your sommelier's notes, you might say, a little bit like cat pee. And in fact, one of the um, <laughs> New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs that I had myself tasted and enjoyed before reporting on this book was called Cat's Pee on a Gooseberry Bush. And it was just kind of one of these questions, even though you, it's sort of tempting to, to dismiss this idea that people with toxoplasmosis are attracted to the smell of cat urine as, as as, as you know, as total bunk, you know, here's this island nation with a large cat population and high toxoplasmosis rates that has as one of its national products, this uh, Sauvignon Blanc that distinctively smells like cat pee. It's just very odd. Well, I guess I'll have to get over my aversion to California Chardonnays. <laughs> <laughs> very fast. So on that note, I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Abigail Tucker. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, David Noel, Eric Clark, Herring Chang, Joel, Jonathan Woosley, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Sean Johnson, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Yushi Lin. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week. Whatever struggles you are facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, Trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.